Hello and welcome back to Commish Talks. This episode of Commish Talks is brought to you by Willow Creek Media. In this week's show, Josh sits down with Keith Tozier, who is, in our opinion, the godfather of futsal. Keith was the first player ever drafted into the MISL, Major Indoor Soccer League, and throughout his career worked as a coach, general manager, and executive for several different teams and multiple different leagues. Keith was the head coach of the U.S. Men's National Futsal Team for 20 years, up until 2017, and is currently the commissioner of the PFL, Professional Futsal League, and host of the world-famous World of Futsal podcast, which has over 200,000 listeners in over 100 countries across the world. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Keith, thanks for joining us, sir. Appreciate having you on. This is a uh, reciprocation. You had me on your very tremendously successful podcast earlier. I believe it's called The World of Futsal. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Um, First, before we get into everything, we always let our listeners know the origin story of our guest. So walk us through your origin story and how you got to where you are today. Is this gonna be like a Netflix series? Because I think I'm gonna need like hours to tell it, but. <laughs> not, maybe not back to Genesis, but you know, just give us, give us the recent, I definitely wanna hear about the indoor soccer world because yeah. that's you know, close to my heart. So let's start maybe, maybe the professional career. Okay, well, I'll give you the 30,000 foot view. You know, I, I grew up obviously in this country playing all the sports that everybody else plays, except I didn't play basketball. I did play street basketball, but didn't like from a high school, college. And then my freshman year in high school, my brother brought home a soccer ball and he said, Hey, I love this new sport. And we kick it around and I kind of fell in love with it and went on for the high school team and did pretty good. Um, I got a scholarship to go on to state. I led that college every year in scoring and they were a division one powerhouse. Uh, it's where uh, Hartwood college is. Uh, it's where the Oneonta Mafia, they so call it, because uh, Don Garber, who's the commissioner of the MLS, was in my class at Oneonta, right? except he went to NFL and I went to indoor soccer. So I, good or bad. Uh, <laughs> then, then I turned pro after I threw my senior year. It's drafted by the Cincinnati kids of the major indoor soccer league. Pete Rose was my owner, along with a guy named Ruben Katz and a couple other guys. And... I was ready, getting ready for the draft in the NESL. Apparently, I was going to go to, to the Washington Diplomats. And uh, I got drafted in the major in the soccer league. I was so excited. I called uh, the guys at Washington and said, hey, by the way, you know, I was broke, but now I got money. And I'm going to play three, year, three months of indoor before I get to you. And they said, oh, no, you're not. And I'm like, what do you mean? And they go, we don't want you to play indoor. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I got this money and I need it. Uh, so... What happened is that all the guys on the Olympic team, with, which Walt Chesowicz was the coach, he helped Ed Tepper do the draft. So Doc Lawson, Ty Keogh, uh, Joe Maroney, myself, we all went indoor, got blackballed from the NASL. Uh, but then my path continued in indoor. And then I was playing in Pittsburgh and someone said, hey, why don't you do this camp in Louisville, Kentucky? So I did a camp in Louisville, Kentucky with two of my teammates. And the following year, someone said, uh, one of the parents, hey, why don't you do like soccer 101 for the parents? And I did that. And there were some wealthy guys in those parents. And they said, hey, we want to start a professional indoor team. Would you want to be the coach? And I'm like, I got two questions. Can I play? They said, yeah, good. I said, can I be like the general manager so I can work on my afterlife? And they said, yes. So I left Pittsburgh where Joshua, they, they, they get 
upped my money and upped my money and upped my money and upped my money, but I was a man of my word. I went to Louisville, walked into the training facility. Peter Malik, who was the general manager, said, I have good news and bad news. I said, okay, what's the good news? He goes, the good news is you're here. What's the bad news? He goes, the ownership group fell through. Oh. I was like, oops. So my first month as a coach was looking for uh, an owner to keep a job. Mm-hmm. And then one thing led to another, and here I am today. Well, you left out a big part of that. You're the all-time winningest coach in indoor soccer history. And I can tell you as a kid, <laughs> I grew up in northern Wisconsin. And starting at about nine years old, I'd read the paper every day, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And I first section I would go to is the sports section. And, you know, I can't tell you more often than not, there's Keith Tozer in the Milwaukee Wave on the front cover winning a lot of championships. And so you left out that big chunk of the story. And I, I would hope you let our listeners know about what that experience was like. You know, I, when you surround yourself with good people in any kind of business and you have a system and you build a culture, that's what we started doing in Milwaukee. We, we had a culture. We built a system. We, and, and I've said we every time because it wasn't me. Futsal was a big part of my success because – you know, there's no really books out there about indoor soccer. There's no convention about indoor soccer. There's no videos about indoor soccer. So when I started as the head coach of the national team, every trip I went on that I would ask the Brazil coach or the Italian coach or Portugal coach or whoever, hey, by the way, can I take you for dinner? Can I take you for lunch? Why do you do this? How do you do that? And then I brought it back and kind of started building a hybrid and brought some players from Brazil to help me teach it. And, and, and that was great. And, you know, Joshua, I, I was so proud to coach the Milwaukee Wave and all my other teams. But the, the time in Milwaukee was special. And to win six championships, which we never thought we'd win one, but to win six was something special. And you went through a number of different leagues during that time. Um, you know, the history of indoor soccer is wrought with change, right? Just like any other professional sport when they first started had different leagues. And I mean, if you look at baseball's history, the amount of leagues they had before MLB really took hold was fascinating, but uh, through it all, you were persistent and Milwaukee wave were persistent and continuous. And I think a lot of the credit goes to you in building that culture. And I, I note too, when I first became the commissioner of the MASL, I heard stories about Keith Tozer, the general, <laughs> oh the general, the general, mostly, yeah. mostly from the referees, we're telling me stories about Keith Tozer. So, um, yeah, which I, I have, a, which I have a ton of respect for, by the way. Yeah, that's a hard job, you know. If we, as no commissioners, and, and we should note, you're a commissioner as well of the PFL. And we're going to get into that in a little bit, but um, if you look at the indoor soccer game and the difficulty of officiating a sport that moves that quick from the angles they have to turn their head, much like hockey, in fact. Um, and there's certain calls we have to make. And, and the reality is we have some very complicated rules that we need to simplify going forward, but it is difficult. And I think as a coach, it had to be ultimately frustrating because there's a lot of errors, un- unfortunately, in the indoor game simply because it's difficult to officiate it. Talk, talk us through, you know, now that you're on your time with that, your interactions with officials. Well, you know, a lot of things in life is a transfer of a tendency from one generation to the next. And Early on in my coaching, I had tendencies from other coaches in me. And I was young. I was eager. I wanted to be be successful. And as you heard, I said, I. And it was, I needed this and I didn't. I think a lot of us try to do that as we climb the corporate ladder. So tensions and stress as a coach 
can kind of come out early in a game. And, and early on in my coaching career, I felt that way. I, I felt like I was a day trader, actually. You know, on Monday, you, you make all this money and you buy a house. And Tuesday, you lose all the money and, and you do something stupid. And, and, and I felt an up and down. When I kind of figured out that it wasn't I, it was we. And that you needed everybody to be part of the solution. I became much more respectful to the referees and added to the fact that their job is very difficult. And when I was able to look at it from a different point of view, I, I became to have so much uh, great fondness of referees. And, and a lot of them, my really good friends. Uh, and it's great. Let me just say one point so I don't forget this. Joshua is the commissioner of this league. We know that baseball, football, basketball, and hockey have been around in our landscape for over 100 years. Uh, indoor soccer is not even halfway there yet. I think there's such a bright future for this game. It's got all the ingredients that all of you know about and the fans should know about it, is that I think it's on the right path. It's what everything a fan would like to watch, a sponsor would like to spend money on. Um, I think it's going in a great direction. So I had to throw that out there before I forgot about it. Yeah, and ripe for television as well. This, this sport is ripe for television. And things, I'm going to bounce this off you, Keith. This is yep. where we're going to have a great conversation about commissioner strategy. And I know we haven't gotten your commissioner role yet with PFL, but let's talk about commissioner strategy. One of the things we think about as commissioners is the growth of the game on multiple fronts. One is the amount of participants we have in playing our sport. One of the things we started when I first came on with the MASL is creating a strategy to build the pyramid of indoor soccer. And we accomplished that with M2 and now we're launching M3. Talk us through your mindset. Is that the right path? Is that what we have to do to grow this game? Or is there never another avenue we should be looking at? No, I think you're spot on. I, I think you have some cities that are larger in scope as far as uh, fan base. I think you have some cities that have different size arenas. I think you have some cities that uh, different size media. And also, I think it has something to do with the financial backing of the ownership group. So I, I think for sure, you know, your cities, your San Diego's, your Milwaukee's, your Baltimore's, uh, Monterey, Mexico, okay, uh, Dallas, you know, to name a lot of them in, in, in year one, I, I, I think that's great. And then you have smaller markets, you know, and, and no disrespectful, because I used to love to come to Wichita. I mean, the Wichita Wings, the, the Orange Army was huge. And I know they're in your MISL too, but, you know, people talk about relegation, well, I don't think that's going to happen in this country. It's not in our framework, but I think for a franchise to move up, I think it could be based upon its success on its business model. Mm -hmm. And when you have that, a team in your MASL three, and it goes to your MASL two and jump to your MISL one, I think that's a huge success story. I think you're spot on. Can I add one more thing? Yeah, go ahead. I've said this to the owners for many, many years. Indoor soccer was almost like an upside down mortgage when it first started. There was a professional league with no grassroots. There was no indoor centers in the United States in 1978. Then all of a sudden you had five to 10,000 indoor centers across the United States in every metropolitan city and smaller city. I've always said that there should be coaching education along with player and referee development. And when you have that, you build more fans, you get more methodology. And when you do it, your phase with your pyramid on one side and that phase on the other side, I think you're in the right direction. That is fascinating. I mean, we've said that for a long time, but you've put new optics on it. 
and you, truthfully, you're more articulate about it as well because you can see how passionate you are about that game. But I want to I want to fast forward to the PFL and futsal, and then maybe we'll come back and meld those two things together. So sure. tell us about the PFL. Tell us about your role as commissioner there. Uh, you want to tell how it started, kind of? Yeah. Yeah, you know, we just won another championship in Milwaukee, and uh, Donnie Nelson, Jr., whose father coached the Milwaukee Bucks here in town, he grew up in Brookfield, and he Googled me, and he called me up, and he said, hey, I might buy a team in Dallas and indoor. Would you like to come and coach and be part owner and do whatever? And I said, well, you know, fortunately, I have a job, and it's with the Milwaukee Wave. Um, I said, but however, have you ever heard of the game of futsal? And he said, no, he didn't. And I said, well, it just so happens that with the national team, we'll be playing uh, France here in Milwaukee, and you should come and see it. And I had closed Juno Street down, and I had uh, a Red Bull stage on one end and Miller's Light stage on another with music all day long and vendors and parties. And then the game was at night for free. Well, his daughter, Christy, came and fell in love with it, went back to him. A month later, I'm in Dallas sitting in front of – Donnie Nelson, Michael Hitchcock, who used to be president of FC Dallas and LA Galaxy, and, and, a, and a gentleman who was a millionaire. And that weekend, we created the PFL, even a logo and everything. Uh, and I was like, wow, that, that's, that's really cool. And then a year later, Mark wanted in. So Mark Cuban bought into it. And so now we're, you know, how to start. You're, you're in it where it's been 40 years. Can you imagine being in it when it hasn't started yet? There are so many things to do to get it going, but it's, it's been great. And by the way, there is a huge tie between futsal, indoor soccer, and outdoor soccer. And I know on May 5th and 6th, the legends of indoor soccer is going to tell a lot about the history of where it came from, where it is now, and where it's going to go to the future. Yeah, and we're definitely going to talk about the legends of indoor soccer by the end of this. And just back to futsal and indoor, what could be a beautiful marriage between those two sports because there is such a like shared I guess technical skill that's used between the players and there's a beauty in both sport and uh, we've talked about this as commissioners of both oh, leagues yeah. trying to meld this and have the seasonality work together and that is in our future I truthfully believe so um, currently too on futsal you're building out those grassroots so talk to the audience a little bit about how you're developing that before <laughs> we get the top of the cake yeah and, and like I said you know that that upside down mortgage and I said that respectfully is that now futsal is growing in leaps and bounds all over the world. I, I think what happened, Joshua, the big kick started because I've been trying to sell this vacuum cleaner for 20 some odd years and really no one would buy it. Now I can't really keep it in stock. And I think when Messi, Ronaldo, Neymar, Rabidio, they all came out and said, I am who I am because in my country, I grew up playing futsal. I think, that was like a big step forward for the outdoor people to say, oh my gosh, there's something here. I, I think when Christian Pulisic made it to the national team and now obviously playing for Chelsea, he played, he was in Harrisburg with his father, Mark, who played for uh, the Harrisburg Heat. And he was around that game. But when Mark moved to Detroit, Ignition in indoor soccer, Everton, which is the coach at St. Louis, Rick Ardino and a couple other guys from Bino were Brazilian futsal players playing in indoor. They would train Christian. Christian played futsal with them. And look where, look where uh, Christian is now. And, and he's got a background of indoor soccer and he's got a background of, of futsal. So put all those things together 
tennis courts being open, basketball, mm-hmm. you know, being open. It, it, it's, it's truly a remarkable story. Back to, you know, the commissioner world and the start of professional sports leagues. What I find interesting in indoor is the strategy differences between the East Coast, the West Coast, and even in Mexico. And so if, for those that don't know, approximately five years ago, the PASL and the MASL came together to form one super league, the MASL, which at the time was 26 teams. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how that occurred in indoor, where you got all this East Coast centric style of play and the West Coast centric style of play. I think a lot of it comes from the methodology of the head coach. I think depending on, and I don't know if it's cultural from the West to the East or the South, I think first it has something to do with what the coach envisions how he wants his team to, to be. Then I think his market, his demographic of where he is has something to do with it. They, they have Monterey in the league, Mexico. That was one of the most exciting places. Wow. I mean, to, to go to uh, Arena de Monterey in the middle of winter to play against these extremely gifted Mexican players with passion and desire in the fans – to me, that was – I just got chills, by the way. Uh, and it's not because I'm cold. I remember so many wonderful times. Their teams were hard to play against. I mean, hard. Um, early on, Joshua, in, in indoor, actually the six coaches that are going to be coming on next week, Kenny Cooper, Gordon Jago, Roy Turner, Alan Merrick, what do they all have in common? They're all English guys. And their methodology was technical, but big, strong, and fierce and everything. Then you had Ron Newman in San Diego that, mm-hmm. you know, was a different European guy, even though he's English, and he had a, you know, different flair. So that's what I love about indoor. I mean, it's kind of like the NBA, isn't it? It's like, you know, you're going to go watch Golden State, and they're going to run and gun and, and counter. And then you're going to go watch the Knicks, and they're going to kind of back off and, and, and bunker in a little bit. Uh, so that's what I love about indoor. So I think, I think it really has to do with what the head coach's vision is, how he wants his team to play or at least it should be, and then they move forward. What's interesting, too, is you can trace today's coaches in the MASL back to the first coaches and the lineage they have. And I think you have one, and Giuliano, who is now with Milwaukee, he's going to coach like you because he learned from you. And you have Phil Salvaggio in San Diego coaching the soccer, he learned from Ron Newman. Yep. So it's just it's interesting, the brain tree. It's like the Bill Walsh brain tree from the NFL still pervades today in the West Coast offense. It's very similar in indoor, and I don't think many people understand that about that sport is – the history and what has led to today and the variance and seeing those teams clash in the playoffs is amazing to watch and uh, the clashing of styles. So um, there's nothing better than, I mean, Danny Kelly played for me, uh, who's won many championships in Baltimore, Nick Pereira up in Seattle, Giuliano, uh, I mean, Everton. Uh, I talked to Clay. Yeah. There's a lot more than I remembered. uh, There's, there's Clay who just won the, uh, uh, coach of the year award and I had a conversation with him yesterday and he was very flattering and said you know he did this because of you know what we did in Milwaukee and so forth and so on so uh, there's there's nothing more flattering than to see I mean it's kind of like you Josh I mean you're a very gifted lawyer and and somebody that grows up in your company or if you put your hand around and you go to the courtroom and you see them and they they're following your methodology and have their own flair I mean that that says tons about you and I think that that says something about a coach yeah no no doubt and the culture you spoke of earlier and trying to recreate that culture and it comes from the top that the I, you know what everybody doesn't like the coach of of New England right the Patriots mm-hmm. right they they think Belichick is this or that 
I mean, he's built the culture there. He's got a system. It's funny. And you could take a wide receiver from another team in the league that has no history of winning. The guy is trying to catch a football with nobody around him in 75 degree weather. And, and he's dropping the ball. He gets traded and the next weekend. He puts on the Patriot uniform and he's now in 30 degree below zero weather with three guys on his back and he's diving and making a one hand catch. What's the difference? I think when you put on a Jersey and it has some meaning behind it, a culture, Kind of like you work for Coca-Cola. You got the logo on Coca-Cola means something. So I, I'm a firm believer in cultures and then systems. As I was say, systems, even in the MSL, I can think of a couple players that literally couldn't see the field in the last three years. They transitioned to a new team and a new system. Honorable mention all MSL that quickly. Yeah, you know, it's that's a funny thing you said, but I always broke players down into A, Bs, and Cs. And the A's are multifunctional, hardworking. Uh, self-motivated, but they're learners. They get concepts, they move on. Bs have some kind of between, the, they're hardworking, but not real hardworking. They're functional, but not multifunctional. They learn, but it takes them five times. The C player, I always kept because I felt that if I moved on to C, cut, traded, or whatever, it had a direct reflection on my ability to not teach them. But when I realized that sometimes employees or players will do better in another system, might be better with another coach or manager. When I realized I need to move them on, they might flourish on another team, just like yeah. you said. There's no question about that. Yeah. Toggling back to futsal, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your podcast. You've done such an amazing job in such a short period of time growing this podcast. Talk about the world of futsal and what it's done for the PFL. Well, you know, I started, <laughs> I started the podcast because I love to talk and I love the sport. <laughs> And I thought if I put those two together, it'd be all right. My first four listeners were my four kids. I took their phones in the middle of the night and I subscribed. So I had four listeners. They didn't even know it. And one thing led to another. And you know, social media is a huge platform. Mm -hmm. And I was doing all my Twitter and my Instagram and bringing guests on. And you know what they said? You got to have a couple shows per week for the first couple months. And then you know, I was doing two shows a week and to get guests, but your show is really based a lot about the quality of the, your, your, um, your guests that you have on, how much they'll share it, and what story they have. And um, it's just been a blessing. I mean, I've had people from all over the world. I, I've, I've been blessed that I know you. I had Nick Pereira and Phil Savaggio and Phil and, Phil and Miguel are actually being released today uh, mm -hmm. about the event next week. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, actually. It's been a lot of work, but it's been a lot of fun. And how many listeners are you up to, subscribers? Well, we're over 200,000, which is, you know, if you look at some, you say 200,000 is really not that much. But I can remember when I got to 5,000, I'm like, wow, I got 5,000 listeners. That's pretty neat. And then I went to 20 and then 50 and then 75. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not like Josh Rogan, who's got 3 million. But <laughs> um, it's, it's definitely a, a great pathway to get you know, news out about your sport or about your yeah. passion that you want to get it out about. I think if you look at the addressable audience for the topic you're covering, and Jake and I talk about that with this podcast, is how many people want to listen about what's under the hood of leagues. There may be, may be a smaller addressable crowd than you would if you were talking about business, <laughs> generally business or tech or whatever it may be. So I think 200,000 for the space you're in is amazing. So well, congratulations. I, I appreciate that. I, want, I, I do have a goal now, though. <laughs> what's that? What's your goal? A, a quarter. Five, seven fifty, and a million. There you so go. now I do have a goal. 
Let's get it there. Let's get, Let's it, get there. it there. Uh, speaking more about, um, you know, indoor, talk about the show you have coming up May 5th and 6th, the all-star lineup. Talking about the indoor game in general. Walk us through what it is, what motivated you to do it, and the charities aspect is massive. So walk us through that a little bit. Well, you know, just like everybody else sitting at home, you're, you're kind of gravitated to either read books or, or do schooling with your children or watch the news. And I'd happen to be watching a week ago, Monday, Friday, uh, 6,000 people in a parking lot waiting for hours to get food in America. And that kind of really shocked me. I, I, I My heart fell out. I, I couldn't believe it. And I said... I, how, how can we make a difference? This, this can't happen, especially children. And I was talking to Zoltan Toff, who's been a legend in the indoor game the, the next day. And I told him, you know, how can we do something? What can we do the legends back? And then I brought my podcast, but during the pandemic, I did several webinars for America's scores and they had a, they had a hundred coaches on like uh, Anson Dorrance from North Carolina, Bob Bradley national team coach, uh, Lynn Berlin Manuel, the head of USC, uh, Kristen Lilly, star player and national team. And they asked me, an indoor guy, a futsal guy, to be the first show. I thought they were joking with me. And I was very proud and honored to do that. In fact, it went pretty good. So we did another one. And right away, Joshua, I, I thought, I need a platform. Wow, go to America's Scores. I need a charity, Feed in America. I need uh, a co host. And JP Della Cameron and I have been friends since our Pittsburgh Spirit days. He jumped all over it. I called Phil Savaggio, the owner of San Diego. I figured let's do it on Cinco de Mayo. He owns a new tequila called Calafino. That hooked together. That my next call, probably the most important call. You know who that was too? Who's that? To you. <laughs> I called you and told you, let's try to feed America, support America's scores, and tell the great game of indoor soccer where it came from where it is and where it's going. Yeah. And from that moment on to now, I mean, we have Landon Donovan coming on, Brian Spencer, who just won an MLS championship last year for Seattle. We have uh, Flatko Andonoski, the, the coach of the women's national team. We have Mark Polisic, father of Christian Polisic. We have Tim and, and Terry Lewicki, who guys started St. Louis, Baltimore and Kansas City. And by the way, they brought music, smoke, lasers into indoor soccer, which the NBA picked up and everybody else picked up. Uh, Jim Cavanaugh played for me in LA, multi-billionaire, just bought the team in Los Angeles. Uh, we have uh, Len Kamarowski, president of the Cleveland Cavs, Chris Wright, president of the Minnesota FC team. Uh, they're coming on with JP Della Cameron. They all work together. Yeah. Uh, and that story goes on and on. Indoor soccer, not only has been a proven ground for players and coaches. Soren Savick in Kansas City uh, played for me uh, and other teams. It's also been a great proven ground for great business leaders. I mean, Sarah Quick, who worked for us in Milwaukee Wave, and Greg Benzel. Greg is the head of corporate sales for the Green Bay Packers, and she's the first woman in Green Bay Packer history as a PR director to be able to go into the locker room. The, yep. the sport has been simply amazing. Yeah, there's no doubt. It's been a proving ground for a lot of people. It's, it's interesting, though, that the thing I've kind of battled as my time in the commissioner of the Indoor Soccer League is this image of indoor soccer versus outdoor soccer. 
and you know people calling it fake soccer and whatnot and i just i don't understand why they wouldn't embrace another form of soccer that plays in their off season at least in the united states talk to me about the history of that and how it came about because earlier you talked about nasl blackballing you because you were playing indoor and is it is that the birth of this kind of division between outdoor and indoor you know it it was definitely 1978 because i was told by the nasl that hey don't go play indoor and i said i wouldn't if you guarantee me you're going to draft and sign me and they said we couldn't do that either and i'm like Mm -hmm. but you know i i gotta go play the nasl and the misl battled each other in the same room well the nasl folded and then the NASL asked the MISL, can we come and join you? Yeah. And that was a tit for tat. Um, it just seems that for some reason, you know, people don't like to be in the same room. Um, and I don't understand that. And, you know, early on, you and I had a conversation. And I remember you saying, well, some of our owners might think that futsal might be a threat. I said, well, well first of all, it's not. And I said, the second thing is, you guys are winter and we're going to be summer. I think we got to build a bridge and how we can help each other. And I think there's always been that, that idea between futsal and indoor soccer. And, and by the way, now outdoor soccer now is taking a much better look at indoor soccer and futsal, because if you talk to the coaches in major league soccer, they all wish their players played one year of indoor soccer because what it does to their players ability to be a better defender, counterattack, technical, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, quick decision-making. Landon Donovan talked about it a lot when he came from the outdoor game to indoor, the differences as a player and what it makes you do. In the indoor game, you don't have time. You don't have time. It's bam, bam, bam. You have to think so far ahead of what you're doing. It's a really interesting interview. Uh, Maybe you'll talk about it with Landon in the indoor show uh, on May 5th and 6th, but hearing the outdoor perspective, a player that you know ultimately might be the greatest player in U.S. history, at least scoring, uh, to talk about the indoor game and the effect it could have on outdoor players. Remember when we didn't make the world cup last round, a lot of people are saying, what are we doing wrong from a development standpoint? And we're sitting over in the indoor game screaming, take a look at us as an avenue to train the outdoor player. And I think Keith going forward for you and I both, we're about to have a blueprint from major league baseball about their idea encapsulating all forms of baseball. Cause over in baseball, there's a division between affiliated minor league baseball and independent league baseball. They don't like each other for business reasons. They invade each other's territory and whatnot. Commissioner Manfred over in baseball has an idea that he's the commissioner of all of baseball, not just major league baseball. And he's going to marry everybody together under one umbrella to make the product of baseball better and create more baseball fans. And I think on the soccer side, MLS or us soccer could have the same mentality and bring everyone together to create better soccer players. I I, I love it. I, I, I think that would be fantastic. For, for whatever reason, I, you know, it's sometimes when people get into positions of power or higher up, it changes some people. I, I think if someone who went into U.S. soccer uh, and said, we need to embrace all of it for the good of the whole, and they each have their own special part of the overall game, I, I think it could work. I Again, you know, I'll take it for instance, in CONCACAF, uh, futsal was growing at a rapid pace. And Hugo Salcedo was inside CONCACAF, good friend of mine, his son coached UCLA outdoor. But because of his passion for futsal and football, CONCACAF was pushing forward. 
Well, Hugo left two or three years ago and nothing's happened for futsal and CONCACAF since, you know? Um, not totally. I mean, there's still competition and everything, but I, I, I think you're right on. If, if someone at the top would say, let's take futsal, let's take indoor, let's take beach soccer, let's take outdoor soccer, let's bring it all together. So Coca-Cola, when you sponsor, you sponsor these four different aspects of it. Um, I think it'd be great. Well, I assume too, from a player's perspective, the indoor game adds some skills, maybe that they need to compete internationally, some skills we may be deficient at in the U.S. game. And this ties back to our earlier conversation about East Coast-centric indoor style of play versus West Coast-centric style of play and being able to adapt to the style of play of other countries when you're in competition. Maybe indoor could provide that little mix in the player technical skill. You know, some people, well, people have been asking me my whole career, you know, outdoor people can't play indoor, indoor can't play outdoor, or they can't play futsal. You know what I tell them? If the player is a real good player, I don't care if he plays on top of a table, under a table, on a beach, <laughs> on a court, on grass, on turf. If he's a player, he's a player. I mean, Jimmy Cabrera, he could go play outdoor with the national team, which he did. He'd go play on the futsal national team and succeed. And he'd go play back in indoor and he'd succeed. So if he can play against these different methodologies, then, then what can others? Now, there's some guys who might be six foot five that might be more suited for outdoor and not indoor. That's great. And there might be some guys suited for futsal and not outdoor. That's great. But I, I really think that those different forms of the sport can overlap and help each other. Yeah, I, I can tell you to your point, Landon had some success with the soccer. He was in a system maybe that lend more to sharing of the ball, whatnot. But Jermaine Jones, when he showed up in indoor his first year, was unstoppable. When he got the ball on his foot, I mean, they were grabbing and clawing and trying to stop him. It, it didn't matter. He had never played indoor before. He was unstoppable to start with. So to your point in that respect, and I'll, I'll, Frank Tayu, who I believe you also coached. Yep. Four-time yeah, yep. four indoor player, has played outdoor, He's by far, I mean, consistently wise, him and Ian Bennett, Leo Gibson, some others, consistent Nick Pereira over the years have been outstanding. Uh, his game not, doesn't necessarily transition to outdoor as well as it is indoor. So it goes both ways in that respect. It's fascinating. There, you know, there have been so many fabulous players to play indoor. And, and please listen, and I'm not you because you're coming on the show, but the listeners of this show, you got to listen next week to, to the legends of indoor soccer, Julie V. I mean, he played at such a high level in Hungary. He played in European clubs. Steve Zungel was on the Yugoslavian national team, played for Hijack Split. You, you got, you know, Preki played in the EPL and is the only two-time back-to-back MVP of MLS, played for the Coma Stars in St. Louis and San Jose. I mean, the, some of, not only the best Americans were playing indoor at that time, some of the best players in the world we're playing in the major indoor soccer, which is now the MISL. And as you said, those names, Ian Bennett, Marcia Leite, Frank Tau, Craig Charles in San Diego. I mean, you, you got a long list of some really, really talented players. And that's what actually I love about the indoor game, the MASL, is we have some stars that have staying power. You know, if you take it tertiary sports in general, typically minor league players, they're in, they're kind of out. You know, we have major arena soccer league. We're on the cusp of moving up to another level of sport in terms of attendance and whatnot. But the thing I love is our players stick around for a long time in our communities. We do have some free agency and stars move around, which is good for us as well. But you're able to build a personality 
uh, that fans can gravitate to. And that's really rare in our level of sport. And, you know, and that's part of building a culture because when you build a culture and the players in the community, not only do well on the team, they coach kids in the community, they, they go to church, they, they do charity work, they dig in and grain in the community. And when that happens, the coach is able to keep a big bulk of his players. If you look at sports across the board, teams that totally switch their coaches every year, or every other year, and change their roster because they can't get it right, they never win. Go back to New England. I mean, consistency for me as a player and a coach and a franchise is as important as the culture and its system. So you're spot on in that. Yeah, I, I think uh, one of my mentors in baseball is Terry Ryan. He was a longtime general manager of the Minnesota Twins, and I got to spend some time with Terry when he was on a sabbatical from GM role when he had cancer. And he talked a lot about consistency. And just, you know, it's not your manager. Your manager is not always the issue into why the team is not winning. And there's such a fine line between success and failure at the top level of professional sport. Consistency and cultural consistency and uh, having the right expectation goes a long way. And I think the other piece of that too, is we talk about professional sports and this is about managing teams, right? And so it's whether it's general manager coaches, sometimes fans don't know you're not the ultimate decision maker on roster rules. There's budget limitations. There's just certain fan favorites. There's business things that dictate how you put together your roster. And that's not always under the coach's control. However, coaches sometimes take the brunt of all of it and ultimately get fired because of it. Well, you know, for all the years that I've coached, I was always the VP or uh, a team operation. So I was negotiating with the players and then had a coach in the next day or the same day. Yeah. And as a coach, you want to take care of your player. And as the GM, you have a budget that you have to keep within to help the owner of the team. Mm-hmm. And, and the balance, those two all the time, it, it's somewhat difficult. I remember, I remember Jerry Buss, who owned the Lakers, who I, who I had a ton of respect for and had a really nice relationship with him. He, he told me one time, I think my budget was 1.4 million or something. And he said, you know, young man, if I give you 1.4 million and I have to move you on, don't come in here and say that I saved you 200,000. If I give you 1.4 million, go spend the 1.4 million and, and I'm hoping that you spend it in the right way. Yeah, that's true. You know, and back to consistency, it, it's just, you see some teams keep coaches for a long time through mediocrity, through down seasons. And I got to think there's a smart GM sitting up there knowing if I switch this out, I got to start all over again. It's another three to four year run. You know, I'm trying to get there. Doesn't it, isn't it that unless the coach has done something really bad or, or, or something happened, sports winning is cyclical for the most part. I mean, for new England to win as long as they have, it's a simply remarkable story in sports, Mm -hmm. but you get a group of players together and you got them for, let's say, in professional sports. You might have them together for maybe three to seven years. And in basketball, we say, go on a run. So you go on a run with that group of guys and, and mm-hmm. you sell corporate and you sell tickets and camps and you run it. Then those guys move on and you might go on a down spur a little bit. And then you got to build it back up again. I remember, I forget who won the Super Bowl one year. He had lost the Super Bowl the year prior. And when he won, they said, what do you got to say? And he goes, everybody's saying I'm really smart. And he says, I was, I was as smart as I was last year. I just happened yeah. to win. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> trust me, I agree. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me at all levels of business and management. It's not like I get any dumber as the years go on. It's just something outside of this happens. I mean, even commissioners and not speaking about either of us, I look at other commissioners across all their leagues and they get let go or terminated. And it's like, it's not like you hired them and you thought they were great and they did exactly what you did and didn't work, but they're taking the ax. Not like they got worse. Um, so that, that's awesome. Keith, we're, we're going to wrap it up real quick. I'd love to have you on again because there's a lot of topics we can This broke. has been 45 minutes already? A pretty, pretty close. And, and really in this oh, podcast, really? we have no timeline, but unfortunately I have to go do some other things. <laughs> I wish we could keep going. Um, one last time, Legends of Indoor Soccer. Give the details so everyone can tune in. Well, this starts on Cinco de Mayo, May 5th at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. We're going to be starting it off with JP Telecamera. He's done 15 World Cups. He's the voice of uh, soccer on Fox Sport. And we will take it from the beginning, uh, talking with John. I can't wait for this segment. You, Ed Tepper, the first commissioner of indoor soccer, along with a guy named Doug Verb, who worked in the front office as the PR marketing guy. You guys kind of kick it off. And then we go from the first coaches of the game to the first head of referees, all the way through years and years and years. And then the last 45 minutes is a fan fest, fan forum, where fans can ask Julie V, Hector Marinero, Zorn Carrick, Taktu, Preki, mm -hmm. and the list goes on and on. Then the next day, it's all the stars of the MASL, and then we got Landon Donovan and all those guys. Really, what this show is all about, it's about the, the story of indoor soccer, where it is, came from, where it is now, and the tremendously bright future that it's going for. Tune in. Go okay. to, go to, if I get this right, go to soccersummit.coachesclinic.com and donate money because we're trying to feed America. Yeah, that, that's the point here is we're trying that's to get point. money to feed America to help with the pandemic and all the people suffering because of it. So, Keith, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you. I'd love to have you back and good luck in the future, sir. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Commish Talks. As Keith and Josh mentioned, if you're passionate about soccer and would like to help out a great cause, please go to soccersummit.coachesclinic.com to donate or join in on the discussion when they go live on Cinco de Mayo. Take care and have a great week.